Good morning. The scripture this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph, before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did just as an angel from God commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he didn't have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. Joseph called him Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Sarah. So this is the second Sunday of our Advent season and series. We've been talking about characters in the Bible who have experienced the light and the presence of God through angels. We talked about Mary last week and how she saw the light of God in the presence of an angel. And this week we consider the story of Joseph and what was given to him as the words of God and of light. In 1972, some of you will remember this, others of you weren't quite born yet. (laughs) You will have no recall of this, but in 1972, the Palestinian Liberation Organization had a group of agents who infiltrated the Munich Olympics. And if you remember that day, they took 11 hostages from the Israeli athlete team and they actually massacred them. Golda Meir, who was the prime minister of Israel at that time, solicited uh, the Mossad for an agent who could lead a secret team. And that secret team of five people went on an international manhunt for the PLO agents that were responsible for the massacre. Their mission was to systematically find them and kill them. That was a success. That was what it was defined as. It was a long, according to the story, a long and dangerous operation for these five agents. Each of them paid a very terrible price personally to be able to participate in this mission. They lived under the constant stress and the hypervigilance of being set out to do this. They were constantly changing their identities. They moved from country to country. They devoted their lives, a period of their lives, to this aspect, to this mission And then they found out that they were themselves being stalked and hunted by a PLO assassin. A couple of them actually were killed in this. 1984, Simon and Schuster published a book by George Jonas. The title of the book was Vengeance. It chronicled the journey of these five agents. Uh, Most of us uh, might be a little bit more familiar with the 2005 movie that Steven Spielberg directed, it was titled Munich. It told the story of these agents. 
English theologian and historian Thomas Fuller is credited with saying it is always darkest just before the day dawneth, right? You've heard it more in the modern English. It's always darker, it's always darkest just before the dawn, right? Now, those of you who are scientific in mind, you know that that's not accurate. It's actually darkest in the midpoint between dusk and dawn because that's the apex of where the center of the earth and the sun meet in the darkest. That's where darkness is, the true darkness. But philosophically, what he says is that there is a thin line between absolute darkness and light. That there's a very thin line between the absolute darkness that you can find yourself in and the activity of light that could be present in that moment. I, I want to propose to you that we humans walk another thin line. We walk a thin line between vengeance and justice. Between the practice of vengeance and the practice of justice in our world. Think about some of the different stories that have been transpiring recently. And, and ask yourself, if you see the responses to these, are they responses of vengeance? Were they responses of justice? You think about the Paris attacks and what they experienced in Paris and all of that transpired and the number of people who lost their lives. The French Prime Minister's response was airstrikes. Vengeance or justice? Vladimir Putin, if you think about the Russian president and what transpired after he discovered and his country discovered that the airplane, the Russian jetliner that carried passengers coming back from the Middle East was bombed and it was brought down by terrorists, what was their response? Airstrikes as well. Vengeance or justice? On Monday in Baltimore, they tried to start the process of seating a unbiased jury to be able to try the Freddie Gray case and the, the police officers who found themselves in that and are now being tried for that. If you remember correctly, the family received a $6.4 million wrongful death settlement from the city, but now they're, they're trying the process of, of being able to try and bring to justice, maybe, these police officers. But is it justice? Or maybe is it vengeance? I, I think most of us know that Monday's news was probably a little more overshadowed by what transpired on Wednesday and the tragedy of San Bernardino, California. 14 people who lost their lives, 20 people who were injured by a man and a woman dressed in assault garb and then come in with all these armaments. And, and I think about the mentality of those two persons. What would drive somebody to be able to do that? Is it an ideology of vengeance or a form of justice? Because in our world, there's a thin line, I believe, between those two and how they're carried out in practice. In the story of Joseph and Mary, there's, there's also kind of that thin line as well between what could have been vengeance and what was practiced as justice in their story. If you think about the context of marriage for Joseph and Mary, technically, by culture and tradition, they were a married couple. The engagement was the formal occasion and the process that started their marriage, not the ceremony that would transpire much later. It was sealed with usually a gift of some kind or some written document that proclaimed them to be married. It could be an extravagant kind of occasion where they gathered as a family unit 
to be able to celebrate this. But everybody knew that they were married. And the only way that they could get out of this one-year engagement, this marriage process, was by the technicalities of the Mosaic Law. The woman either had to be unfaithful or one of the two of them had to die. And that's the only way that they could break off the marriage, this engagement. Now, it's assumed by the gospel narratives that when Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant, it is because of infidelity, right? That somehow she had been unfaithful to her marriage covenant. And according to the Mosaic law, infidelity in that form was literally considered adultery. It was not premarital promiscuity. She had been unfaithful to her husband. And the law gave Joseph certain rights, certain abilities. He could have denounced her in front of everyone. But the most important thing about this, too, is is not only could he disgrace her, he could disgrace her parents and her siblings. Her whole entire family would have been brought out into public, and he could have denounced all of them in that moment. He could have even gone as far as to ask for her to be stoned. That was customary and that was right. That was the Mosaic law in its literal form and how it could have been practiced. And that probably could have been seen as a form of justice or maybe Joseph taking his vengeance for Mary's infidelity. But if you remember something about the story that was just read, there's there's something that's said about Joseph. Joseph was a, do you remember? A righteous man. Joseph was a just man. He was already bent. He was already predicated to something that wasn't necessarily the literal application of the law, but maybe something that was a little bit more the spirit of the law. And so Joseph determined that what he was going to do was just simply put Mary away quietly, to to break off this engagement quietly, so nobody else knew other than the two of them and their families. But God had something more important in mind. God wanted justice to be lived out in a way that everybody could see. And so the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in the middle of one of three dreams. This is the first of three dreams that Joseph has. And the angel says to him, Mary has been faithful to you. The child that she is bearing was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife to bring her into your home And that when the baby is born, Joseph, I want you to name the child. To make this child your heir. And to name him Jesus. Now here's what I find fascinating about the story. And curious maybe even for me. In the gospel narratives of Matthew and Luke that record the birth of Jesus, Joseph is a voiceless presence in the story. No words of Joseph are recorded by the gospel writers. Joseph does not speak in the gospels. Joseph only acts. What the gospels record are the actions of Joseph. A faithful and a just man who chooses God's vision of justice over his own and who implements this by taking Mary as his wife and raising this child by naming him as his own heir. Joseph is a righteous, just man who enacts the justice of God. 
I think for many of us, as we try to balance that thin line of vengeance and justice, we could learn from this story ourselves and maybe conceive of how justice could be practiced in a little bit different way, in the way that God designed it to be and how God wants us to be a people who live this out. But we've got to think about how we practice that justice, how it becomes a part of our everyday lives. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a uh, a letter to the church of Philippi, encouraged them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Two wonderful words that could lead you along, along a lot of different ways of thinking about it. But think of it this way. To work out your salvation with reverence for God above all else and with an effort that puts a strain on you physically, emotionally, and spiritually. To work out your salvation with fear, reverence for God, and trembling, and effort that's going to cause you to strain for that. It's like exercising, right? My wife and I recently bought a a Peloton bike. There's probably only one other person in here who absolutely knows what that is. But a Peloton is a stationary bike that you could ride at home. But this is a little bit different in that it has a flat screen TV on it, And it's got a web service that you can actually log into online classes. They are live and some of them recorded. So you're taking a spin class with other people while you're riding this bike, even though you don't have to leave your home to go to a spin class. That is the greatest thing ever in my mind, right? But you get the opportunity to exercise yourself. One of the coaches says something particular every single ride that you take with her. She says this. As you exercise, you need to pay attention to your body. Because it isn't the body that you had a few years ago. Right? It isn't the body you're going to have six months from now. It's the body that you have in this moment. If you think about exercising, it's the same way. It's that principle at work there that you have to pay attention to the body that you have today because you can't exercise like you might have when you were 20. For those of you who are 20, are you exercising, by the way? And you can't exercise like you were, you know, when you're going to be somewhere else down the road. You've got to exercise as you are today. And you think about the spiritual application of that as well. It's the same thing when it comes to our faith. You cannot exercise a faith that you had years ago. And you can't wait and delay to exercise a faith that you hope to have six months from now. You've got to exercise and work out the faith that you have today. Amen? You've got to work out that faith that you have today. You think about the goal of exercise. The goal of exercise is to shed unhealthy habits that are physical, emotional, and even spiritual strains. You are putting in this exercise to build stamina and muscle to improve your physical and your emotional outlook on life. It's to get stronger and healthier so that you might meet the challenges around you, right? It's the same thing for your spiritual life as well. You've got to exercise your faith to shed the unhealthy habits of sloth and neglect and isolation from the world and its troubles. You've got to engage in the exercising of your faith so that you might grow in your understanding of who Jesus Christ is and how you then might emulate it in your very own words and deeds. How you might become this person that God desires you to be. And so just like 
physical exercise, spiritual exercise, the exercising of your faith requires daily practice. Think about the things that you could do each and every day that will nurture your faith and cause it to grow so that you might become a person of God's justice in the world. To know who God is. To daily read the story of God and see how God has been active in the world around us in history and as it's portrayed in these stories, but how God might be active even today. To read the story of God, to love God more, to abide with God each and every day through your own devotional life, through the people that you associate with, the small groups that you participate in, so that you might grow deeper in love with God and then to live out God's justice in the world by your presence and your being and the things that you are doing. I think about the things that we're going to be doing in the next year, particularly when it comes to our missions. One of the things that we're really intentional about is also incorporating in that justice and service activity. How we as a community of faith might lift up that need for us to be a just people who are exercising the justice of God in the world around us. Because we all know that vengeance is an activity that's operating well in our world. I think we see many examples of how that is. But I also believe that when we enact God's justice in our lives, we could be a people that change the world and change it for the better. See, I passionately believe that God is inviting, calling every single one of us to live out His justice in this world and to be a people who see that as a way of changing the world. So here's what I hope that you take away from this moment that we've had together, some things that you might converse about a little bit later on. To be reminded that there is this kind of thin line between vengeance and justice in our world. And Joseph was a person who didn't seek the vengeance that certainly could have been afforded to him through the Mosaic Law. Rather, he was already bent. He was inclined to act justly as God would have him. And God just moved him a little bit further along in the story, told him what it would look like. I think we know what justice looks like in this world, but we have to exercise our faith in such a way that we might be able to practice it on a daily basis. So here's your invitation. Maybe for some of us it might be to get back into that daily practice and routine of reading the story of God. To find a few moments to just sit down And read the story, whether it's from a a CEB, a Common English Bible, a New Living Translation, the story itself, whatever form you want to look at it, to be able to engage the story ourselves day in and day out and to learn from it so that we might come to know God in a deeper way. But to also think about our love of God and how it might increase through the people that we are around, through abiding with God each and every day, and reading stories of people who are in love with God and how that forms and shapes their lives. For others of us, it might be the practice of ministry and service to be just people in this world. You'll see many different ways in which that's transpiring in our community of faith if you just simply read through the invitations there in the back part of your worship guide. But I know this much. I am certain that God's invitation is not just for us to be a group of people who are sheltered and passive believers who gather together for one hour on Sunday. 
God's ultimate vision is for every single one of us to be people who daily live out the justice of God in the world around us. It is an invitation. It is a calling for all of us. Will you hear it? And will you live it? Will you join me in a moment of prayer? So God of mercy and grace, God who is just above all else, we thank you for this moment that we can gather together as a community and to hear your words and to hear your calling for each and every one of us to be your act of justice in this world. We pray that your spirit might descend upon us, give us the strength and the power to be able to exercise our faith in such a way that we might grow in our knowledge and our love for you. And from that, we might be moved to serve the world. As much as we desire for this world to change, O God, we know that it will only change through the enactment of your justice. So we pray that you send us to be your missionaries, your people of service, so that your justice might be made known, and come to rule and reign in this world. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. So I want